So we're talking about Hosea. It just keeps going. It just keeps getting better. Um, if you're not familiar with that song, You Ought to Be from 1989. It's actually 72, I think, and then it was remade in 99. Maybe, maybe earlier than 72. 89 was when it went huge by, uh, who did it? What is it? No. Simply Red, thank you. Yeah, Simply Red. Um, and, and so anyways, I, was, I don't know how it happened. I have zero idea how it happened that I came upon this song this week. But, uh, but I started thinking it through the realm and the lens of Hosea, and it, it's a perfect match for kind of the attitude of God, except for one way. And that one way is the last line, because it's, it's, it's all about, like, how do you not know me in the truest way? And the final line is, then you will never, never, never know me. And that's where the story of Hosea changes, the, the script. That's where the, the story of God's character in Hosea says, if you don't know me by now, I will continue to pursue you forever until you finally do. And so, so what we've been doing um, is, is kind of working through this complicated and beautiful book, um, prophetic book of Hosea. And, uh, and we're going to spend a bit of time in Matthew today because for our final week, that's where this uh, last statement of Hosea actually leads us. But we talked about the, the character of God over and over again that's revealed in this old, ancient, prophetic piece of literature. Um, we talked in the first week about a God who is incredibly emotional. All right, we like to think that God's very stoic sometimes, and that idea comes from the Greeks we talked about. But in reality, the scriptures reveal a God who, who gets frustrated and angry, and then his heart breaks, and he comes back, and it's all over the place because God loves, and when you love deeply, you feel deeply. So we get a glimpse of a God who feels deeply. And that feeling of God, we talked about, allows or, or means that God is even willing to suffer on behalf of revealing and pursuing that love. God is willing to suffer to maintain faithfulness, willing to, to be excruciatingly patient, just like uh, Hosea was for his wife, Gomer, even when she continued the cycles of unfaithfulness that she had learned in her youth. And so, so we, we looked at that, and we looked at how, you know, even when Hosea takes Gomer back the second time, it's, he, even, he even deals with the, the pain of the reputation that he receives from her, <laughs> being the one who's married to that woman. And he continues the covenant anyways. And God often does the same thing, even when we maybe misrepresent God pretty poorly sometimes. And so, so God continues to, to want to be linked to us. So we talked about that, and then the next week we bounced, and we talked about how God's vision is, uh, is his pursuit to restore fully. That that's a huge part of God's heart, is full restoration, not partial restoration. And, and so it's to move us from an awareness of our own guilt, not toward shame. We picked apart shame last week, but toward conviction so that we can actually become different people. So God's, God's heart is never for us to live in guilt or shame, certainly not shame, but when we realize that we've gone off track, it's to come back and actually be fully restored 
So just like the story of the prodigal son, when the son comes and his, his assumption is that you'll, I've, I've gone away so far that I guess you'll just, maybe your love would mean making me one of your servants. I know I, I, know I can't be a son anymore. And the father says, baloney, you back, fully restored. And so Hosea talks about the same thing. Hosea says that, that, I will, that I will love you freely without any strings attached, without any memory of the past, without any power dynamics of keeping you down here because you've screwed up. And we all know how that can go. And so it's this incredible vision of God to restore fully, to have full relationship back and running, complete partnership. All right, so this week then we ask the question, after we move into restoration, what does keeping that covenant connection look like? Uh, what, what are the right and wrong responses to God's faithfulness toward us? So we're going to hop right in so that we can get to some, some fun stuff in just a little bit. So we're in Hosea 6, and I mentioned already, and I've mentioned multiple times, that the book of Hosea is not linear. It's not like many other of our books. So you can't read it at the beginning. I mean, you can. The first three chapters are moderately linear. And then it's just 25 years of prophetic oracles here and there. So there's judgment and there's compassion and there's frustration, intense frustration. And then we hear over and over again that even though God's frustrated, like a parent would be with a child or like a spouse would be, that he doesn't act on that frustration, that constantly his compassion overwhelms him. Okay, so that's the story that we get. So, so when we look at Hosea 6, even though we looked at like Hosea 14 last week and things like that, it's just because it's not necessarily linear. But we're going to take a look at a different angle um, of, uh, of a God whose ongoing love, remember, has been squandered by people who have been really comfortable in a world where they worship God. Yes, and, and a few other things from time to time. You know, so they've got like a side hustle going on in their faith relationship, but they're very comfortable. So everyone goes to temple on Saturday or synagogue. Um, not temple, sorry. Temples, <laughs> there's problems with the temple at the moment. Everybody's kind of dispersed. But, um, but they, go, they go and they worship on Saturday and they make their sacrifices. But what's happening is not a lot else in terms of the obedience that God has called his people to over the years. All right. So this was a time, remember, in Israel's history where they were very strong in a lot of ways. They were secure in their military. They were strong politically and economically because they were linking themselves up with the Assyrians. Okay? And so when that happens, what we get is the story that we call idolatry, where the values of all these other peoples that are really bloodthirsty and violent and not focused on care for other people, and certainly not focused on one God, those things had started to creep in. Okay, so this is what we inherit when we get to this story in, uh, in Hosea 6. All right? And so we're going to start um, in, in verse 4. And, uh, and Ephraim and Judah, they're, they're different tribes, but they're interspersed at various times to, uh, to talk about Israel. All right, so don't get, don't get sidetracked. So... Um, actually, let me read verse 3 before we hit that, okay? Verse 3 says, um, you know what? Let's just, yeah, there we go. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him as surely as the sun rises. He will come to us like the winter rains and like the spring rains that water the earth. So they're saying God's going to come and they use this weather pattern to describe it, Okay. And then God's response comes in verse 4. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like early dew that disappears. 
Just think about that image. So they're like, your love's going to come like the rain and water the ground. And, and, and God's response is, hold on, your love? You talk about my love being faithful, like, like bringing life from the earth. But your love, if you want to go weather, if you want to talk about weather patterns, like I can do that. When I think of your love, when I write poetic, this incredible poetry, your love, Israel, is like the morning mist that disappears after a couple minutes. You know, it's like, it's like the dew that dries up as soon as the sun comes out. Come on, people. And there's frustration. And so God says, therefore, and, and it's really important to understand this. So, so the vision is there, and this is a statement of what's happened throughout all of history. Therefore, I cut you into pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. So we're talking about conviction here. We're not talking about slaughter in the physical way. He's saying, listen, I tried to wake you up and shake you. The words of my prophets, they cut you to the bone. Then my judgments went forth like the sun because your dew was drying up. So this, this is the story. He said, you keep missing the point, even though I've sent my prophets to talk about what really matters over and over and over again. I'm trying to tell you what really matters. And then we get one of the most key passages that we have in the Old Testament. It's quite well known uh, because Jesus quotes it. That's why we're going to get to Matthew in a little bit. And he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. The word for mercy here, it's really interesting. We want to quickly move to mercy because we know who Jesus is. <laughs> and we want to quickly say, oh, this means that I want you to be like, like kind and loving towards strangers and, and outsiders and everything. That's actually not what's going on here. Even though I, that's, that's what I want to believe. I want to, I want to say that's exactly what's going on. Yes. But the word mercy is the word chesed. You just sound really smart. Just say the word chesed and cough at the beginning of it. Uh, and so the word chesed is throughout the scriptures all over the place. It's often uh, defined as steadfast love. Okay, remember in the, the things leading up, God has just been saying, I have been faithful to you over and over, but you, to me, have continued to miss the mark, like morning dew that dries up. And so, so the, the word here is, is steadfast love or mercy. And the reason in, in the Hebrew world, all words have pictures with them. Hebrew is very image-rich. And so the image is the type of love that a father has for his child, even when his child screws up. That's why we call it steadfast love or mercy, both of those things. Just like the prodigal son story. If you're, if you're a parent, you love your child, even when they make mistakes. Sometimes that means you need to have mercy, but it's kind of the bigger picture is that I'm always going to continue loving you no matter what. And so that's what's going on. So the first image here is that God is saying, I have had, and, and chesed is throughout all of the Old Testament. It's all over the place. God proclaiming his steadfast love to his people. And people crying out to God and saying, God, show us your mercy. Show us your steadfast love. You've made this promise to us. We need it. But this is the only instance that God asks people to show steadfast love. You get it? So, so God tells people, I have, I have said for you. And people say, God, have said for us. But this is the only time that God says, hey, people, I need you to show steadfast love back to me. 
because that's what a relationship is built on. So it's unique in that way. But, but the point of what is being said here is from God is all I really want for you is to love me genuinely, like we are family, like we are truly committed to each other. See, the prophets over the course of history had urged God's people toward holy living, toward doing the right things to be in good relationship with God. And the response of people has been to increase their sacrifices, to increase the amount of times they go to church, to increase all of the holy activities. And, and the, the point is God is like, you guys, you're supposed to be different because of your relationships and not your rituals. What is supposed to set you apart is the way that you relate to me and the world, not all of your rituals. Everybody has rituals. I don't desire the rituals. I desire the, the, this steadfast love and mercy and care. This is nothing new. This is a completely consistent voice throughout the prophets, and you can see it right here, that sacrifices, um, religious rituals, even, even religious rituals that are focused on forgiveness— are not what God is primarily interested in. God is primarily interested in relationship, and forgiveness plays a role in relationship, but not these religious rituals. So, so in Isaiah, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. That's about, that's about all of the religious activities, right? But their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is about rules. A bunch of rules that they made up. They're missing the point. In the Psalms, David writes, sacrifice and offering you don't desire but my ears you have opened. Literally, the, the language there is ears you have dug out. I love it that God is digging in his ears, getting rid of all of the buildup that's made it impossible for him to hear about who God really is. But, and, and when he opens his ears, he finds out burnt offerings and sin offerings. That's not what you require, right? And then later on in his confession, he says, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. He's, he, David has grown in his understanding. I'm getting it now, God, that your heart is not about all of these things that I've made it about. You don't take pleasure in all of these rituals if my heart's not there. So my sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. That's what I'll lay on this altar. Not a bull. I'll lay my own spirit open. And a contrite heart. Because I know, God, that's what you'll receive. I know you won't despise that. So, we get back to this story, and, and, um, and, and we're seeing that over and over, God says, I don't want the ritual stuff. You've missed the mark when every time that you feel conviction, what you do is you amp up your religious activity. You're missing what I'm trying to say. And so, what do I want? What are the two things that, that, that we get here? He says he desires two things. The first one is, is, is hesed, mercy, that we just unpacked, and then the the second word, or the second phrase, is parallelism. So, mercy, not sacrifice, and then something that matches that. Acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. That word, knowledge, is really interesting. In, in the Hebrew, there's a word called yada, or yada. Easy to remember. Just yada, 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 yada. Um, is like, you know so much. But, but no, it's about knowing, and it's an intimate type of knowledge. <laughs> um, a very intimate type of knowledge, the type of intimate knowledge that Adam and Eve had with each other when God made them, that's, that's yada, okay? It's, it's a soul-level knowing, okay? It's, it's really, really deep. But there's another, there's another word, okay, 
that, that is about knowledge. And that's what's used here. He doesn't use yada, okay? He used this word called dahath, and that word is about understanding. And so, by the way, Hosea is chock full of the yada. Know me so closely, God says. I want you to know me like a husband and wife relationship. That kind of honesty. That kind of, of intimacy. But this, this says, but in this moment, what I want you to do is I want you to understand who I am. Because right now you don't get it. I want you to know me intimately in terms of I want us to have this connection. But I also want you to understand what I'm about. Instead of just doing the burnt offerings, I want you to get what I'm what I'm, I'm focused on. And so we see it again over and over in this section of Hosea. There's no faithfulness, no love. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. That does not mean nobody is raising their hands and shouting, Yahweh is great, you know, during worship services. That's not what it means when he says there's no acknowledgement of God in the land. So you're not understanding God's heart. And how do you know that? Because there's no love. There's cursing, there's lying, there's murder, there's stealing and adultery. And later in Hosea 4, he said, my people are destroyed. They're ripped apart because they don't understand what I'm after. This is where we start to hit on what's so important about what's coming. All right. So there's this sense that it's not just that people are lacking in sincerity, but they don't even understand who God's about. So they've gotten it wrong. And this is something that God has been at work to correct throughout all of the scriptures. In fact, look at Jesus' statement to, to John in uh, in, in uh, I'm sorry, to Philip in John 14. Uh, he's having this conversation about God's character. Philip wants to see God. And Jesus says, Philip, don't, don't you know me? Don't you know? Is there no knowledge yet of my character? Do you not understand that, that the Father and I are one? And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father and vice versa. Do you not get it yet? And, and, and Jesus picks up on the idea that it's really hard for us to understand God's character because we have all these human tendencies. We have all these human tendencies to be, to, to when we need to make things right, to, to go to ritual instead of relationship. And so we have all these tendencies to try to find a, a, um, a formula that will work to make us feel better in our relationship toward God instead of the hard kind of soul-rending work of being real before God and understanding what God's heart is all about. So, so we see this. So remember, God doesn't just want us to be restored. He wants us to understand what his character is like because how we live out our faith is going to be based on what our belief of God is. There's no faithfulness because there's no understanding of who I am, Hosea says. So here's why all that's important. Jesus is about to do something with this passage that'll help us understand even more, understand, have knowledge even more about God's heart. Hosea 6.6 is likely only familiar to most of us because Jesus quotes it. And it's in the middle of this incredible story that unfolds because a tax collector in Matthew 9 is called by Jesus. All right? And so I want you to, uh, to actually watch a depiction of it. So in case it's too loud, Dustin, be ready. But uh, just, take, just take a couple minutes and just enter into a story of a tax collector who was protected by bars <laughs> because he was a traitor to the Jewish people because he pulled and extorted taxes on behalf of the Romans. So he was very, very um, looked down upon and, and even required, uh, we have knowledge now that he even required protection and, and kind of guarantees from the Romans that he wouldn't get into trouble because the Jewish people would, you know, beat him up if they had a chance. 
Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I don't get it. You didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? I grabbed it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. That's not going to be a problem. You're the host. Uh, and so it's, that's a great... I, I, I'm obsessed with depictions of Jesus, no matter what. Whether they're... Yeah. Whether they're made recently or long ago, or whether they're an act of fiction... I, or, or accurate to the scriptures, um, but this one's, this one's pretty accurate. Um, and uh, and so, so this is the story that the conversation that we're about to have comes in the midst of, all right? So, so we're at Matthew's dinner party. He's just been called, Matthew is a tax collector and known as very much a sinner, according to the religious elite, because of what he's done to, um, to, to betray his own people by collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. And so, so after he calls um, Matthew to follow me, he's having dinner at his house. And the Pharisees see that Jesus is having dinner with Matthew and his friends. Okay? And, and the Pharisees ask the disciples of Jesus. They, they avoid Jesus because Jesus tends to win at most of the verbal sparring. So they ask the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And the reason that they ask this question is because Jesus would be becoming ceremonially unclean by even being in the presence of these people. They didn't follow all of the rituals that um, the keepers of the law would have followed. And so, so in doing so, they're saying, Jesus, you're, you've been tainted. All right. 
And Jesus overhears the question whether physically or perceives what's going on because he has that ability. And, uh, and, he, and he responds to them directly. And he says this, and he says it in Luke 2. You might be familiar with this phrase. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says, go and learn what this means. And go and learn is a phrase that rabbis would use, much like come and see, as a part of their teaching. Go and learn what this means. So to say go and learn to a Pharisee who spends much of their lives telling other people to go and learn something is like classic burn on the religious elite, okay? So Jesus raises an eyebrow and says, go and learn what one of your scriptures means. But here's why it's more complicated. When Jesus says, go and learn what this means, and then quotes Hosea 6, 6, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then he says, no longer quoting Hosea, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is doing something very interesting. Hosea 6, 6 is not about God's people eating with sinners. It's not even about the outsiders at all. It's about steadfast, faithful love to God. Okay? So Jesus is taking artistic, interpretive license with Hosea and deciding not to change the meaning but to broaden it in a new way. Jesus has this tendency to broaden things, right? We've been through this before. Virtually every time Jesus talks, he makes the kingdom of God bigger. But he says, go, go, it's the same word for disciple. Go disciple yourself in this. (gasps) That word learn is where we get disciples from. Go disciple yourself in this passage, okay? And what Jesus does is in, in Hosea, God declares that he wants people to be faithful, to love them the way he loves them, right? And then to understand who God really is instead of just acting like any other God and the ritual sacrifices that go along with that. So Jesus uses this same passage to justify eating with tax collectors. So when Jesus quotes it, what he does is he uses a different word. Obviously, he's speaking in... in, um, Aramaic, he's not speaking in Hebrew, but he uses a different word that means mercy, and the first word that means, that means mercy and steadfast love, chesed, this is different, elios, and this word means specifically compassion for the outsider, but the root mercy can be interpreted both times, okay? So this is the same word when he says, for I, uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and then says, Uh, when when this Jewish man was beat up and a Samaritan shows him love and he asks the religious leaders, he said, who showed this man mercy? That's the same word here. So the mercy, this word, is really about compassion specifically for the outsider. Make no mistake of what Jesus is doing here. He's talking about loving tax collectors and sinners and he's using this passage to explain it. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So, Essentially, Jesus is saying that the religious folks, they need to learn that steadfast love for God is equivalent to care for sinners. Steadfast love for God is equivalent to loving outsiders. The Pharisees are missing the point. By the way, this is really consistent with what Jesus will say later in Matthew 25, verse 40, when he says, whatever you've done for the least of of these people in your society, you've done to me, you've done for me. All right, this is very consistent. And so what we're getting is we're getting a difference between what Jesus would look at the Pharisees and saying, you've missed the point because you are so incredibly religiously pure, but you haven't understood the character of God enough to be complete. 
All right, so there's, there's a way. And when we talk about sacrifice, you know you can live sacrificially. We also talk about that. So let's, let's make sure that we're re- really clear on what we mean when we talk about, about some of these things. But I want to talk about the temptation that we have to pursue the way of sacrifice rather than the way of mercy. All right? Um, so when I say the way of sacrifice, what I really mean is kind of religious obsession. All right? There's two ways to approach what it means to experience God's restoration in us. So the first one is the way of of sacrifice. And one of the things that you'll notice, the way of sacrifice is is always going to be transactional religion. Okay? So the way of sacrifice is based on figuring out kind of the right rules that I have to do, the right things I have to do to get right with God, and then turning them into a system, okay? So, so we say, what do I have to pay <laughs> to, to uh, feel good about myself and about how God feels about me? And it becomes very transactional often. And often, I, I'm, I'm afraid, often we, we take the cross and we turn it into only transaction. Jesus died to save me, true, but, but Jesus d- died to reveal his love and end cycles of violence and injustice in the world also. <laughs> to absorb all that is evil and wicked in the world and say that does not have ultimate control because that ends in death and I'm beating death. So, so it's more than just a transactional relationship. And so what we end up finding out is within that, um, this way of sacrifice, we also, um, it, it, it becomes primarily about my forgiveness. So it's very much about me um, a, a sacrificial understanding of faith that Jesus critiques, okay? Very much about me. Um, even with a repentant attitude, it's always about me and my own forgiveness, and my faith can be defined with nobody else in the world at all, okay? And that's problematic for a number of reasons. And, and one of the other things that it leads to is the only, the only place for people in a sacrificial system are... <laughs> Oh, sorry. There's screaming. We're talking about a sacrificial system. Um, <laughs> do you understand what I have to do to my mind sometimes when I am teaching to stay linearly focused? You're like, those of you that are around are like, what are you talking about? You're never linearly focused. So what ends up happening with this system is that the only good that people are, the only value that other people have in this system is for means of comparison to make sure that I'm, that I'm righter or better or more well-off. And so this is where we get the prayer that Jesus talks about from the, from the Pharisee, right? Um, in um, that, uh, Luke 18, when, when the Pharisee's on the street corner and he says, God, thank you so much that I am not like all those other people. I, ten- I, I tithe every day. I do all of my sacrifices. I never miss synagogue. And, and, and then he says, actually, the one that's justified is the dude on the other corner, not with his hands raised and making a big show of it, but that says, God, I'm a sinner. I need you. Boy, do I screw up. Please. I need your love. I need your, I need your hesed, your steadfast love. And so, so people become just a means of comparison if it's all about me, okay? So, so on, on the flip side then, a, a world of mercy. Oh, by the way, let me just talk about... Um, prideful prayers, um, specifically suburban middle-class middle Christians tend to do this with the poor quite a bit, all right? We tend to look 
And I love how Father Greg Boyle talks about it. He says, if we understand God's heart, he said, we need to learn how to stand in awe at the burden that the poor have to carry instead of standing in judgment at the way that they carry it. We often look at ourselves and say, I'm so thankful I'm not like that because I've made good decisions. I've made right decisions. And maybe you've made good decisions. I'm not saying you haven't. But what we end up doing is we end up not having mercy as a part of our faith because we justify that our own correct actions, which are often linked to the families that we came from, are the reason that we have it well or we have it good or God's blessed us and not that dude down the street. So we just really need to keep an eye on this because we might think that the sacrificial approach doesn't affect us, but for most of us, it is something that we have to to really be aware of. Um, So the way of mercy looks different. The way of mercy means that we believe God is great, not just because he's bigger and deserves sacrifices, but because he loves and cares for everyone, not just us. So that's one of the big marks is the way of mercy understands that God's love and faithfulness is toward everyone, and God's pursuit is toward every single person, okay? We also believe that our our commitment to God is based on love and not on what we get from God. It's based on the fact that we love one another, and so what we get is relationship instead of transaction, It's a faith that embraces God's love for everyone. It's a faith faith that's founded on relationship. It's not a faith that's founded on, well, as long as God does what I need God to do for me, then I will love God back. No, we're in a relationship. It changes things. Um, Third, the, uh, the approach that we take here in terms of a way of mercy is that we know that in order to dwell well with God, it requires more than church attendance, More than even confessing our sins to God and asking forgiveness, it requires walking the way that Jesus walked to the best of our ability. So it's about, oh boy, discipleship. There we go. Um, So discipleship is a big core of the way of mercy, that we understand that we are actually called not just to get things right with God, but to walk faithfully long-term with Jesus. And then finally, um, the, the way of mercy means that when we have a chance to show compassion for others, we always do it, period. We always show compassion whenever we have the opportunity. Because we know God's character, because we're on the other side of Jesus, there's no knowledge in the land, Hosea proclaimed. But there is knowledge now. There is We know what God's character is like, so when we have the opportunity to live with compassion, we do. The beautiful thing about this, and I realize that for a lot of you, I'm kind of cutting it off. The beautiful thing about a system like this is it does not pit. It does not pit our love of God against our love of neighbors. And unfortunately, I don't know how this has happened, but it happens That's what ancient Israel did over and over again. That's what the Good Samaritan story was all about. Compassion was not offered by the priest because he couldn't afford to make himself unclean religiously. So his love for God changed his ability to love someone in need right in front of him. These things do not need and should not be in the way of Jesus butting up against each other. All right? Um, We often do the same thing. Christians can use our love for God as an excuse to behave badly toward other human beings to ignore God's image in them. That's wrong. It's wrong. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in 1938 Germany 
said this during a confirmation message to uh, people who are growing up and taking faith uh, personally in a new way. You have only one... Oh, I think I actually have the... Uh, I think I've got the quote here. You have only one master now. But this yes, but with this yes to God belongs just as clear a no. Your yes to God requires your no to all injustice, to all evil, to all lies, to all oppression and violation of the weak and the poor, to all ungodliness and to all mockery of what is holy. Your yes to God requires a no to everything that tries to interfere with your serving God alone, even if that's your job, your possessions, your home, or your honor in the world. Belief means decision. There's this 90s worship song, I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. Any of you familiar with it? There it is, Adam. Yep. It's all about you, Jesus. Yes and no. <laughs> Absolutely, it's all about Jesus. I, there's a great, great heart, no pun intended, to that song. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you. But Jesus says, yes, but if it's all about me, it's also going to be about others. You're going to, by nature, not be able to walk out of a genuine worship experience and not love your neighbor. Because otherwise you've got a split personality. Who is it that talks about salt water and fresh water coming out of the same spring? James? Thanks, James. Yeah. So, so this idea of you can't, you can't do one and the other. You can't honestly, genuinely say, I love you, God, and then not love your neighbor who needs compassion when you pass them by. And granted, you can, you can do all the what-ifs about, like, well, it's impossible to help every single person in the world. And, you know, if you walk through New York City, you can't give $5 to every single homeless person. I'm not trying. I don't, I don't want us to create these dichotomies. What I'm saying is an attitude and a willingness to truly love well will go along with our love for God. Um, God's character is too full of love for our worship to only involve a vertical expression. So Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, loving others is not like an Amazon add-on item that you throw in the cart after you've got enough to make a purchase so that you can get free shipping. It's got to be a key ingredient in everything that we do. So um, it's, it's the main thing, right? Loving others and loving God are two ways of loving God. Worship without mercy is lifeless. All right? When we do this, Jesus says, you're trying to acknowledge my existence without acknowledging my character. What good is that? Okay, God's real. Great. What good is it to acknowledge my existence without actually acknowledging my character and who I am? That's when your life will start to line up with my heart. So what do we do? We go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We stop trying to move toward God without actually living the compassionate and consistent across all of life way that God calls. All right? It's not about sacrifice, but it is sacrificial. This is the way of Jesus. Yet it'll be really joyful, truly joyful, if in this compassion we have an understanding of who Jesus really is. That's when it will become incredibly joyful. So, over the last month, We've talked about how God passionately pursues us over and over again at great cost. How God restores us fully into love and partnership. And then we respond, not by religious rules and not even simply by faithfully loving God alone, but by extending the same attitude of love and restoration toward those on the outside like Jesus did. This is the beauty 
of a God whose love is so incredibly large that it encompasses the entire world. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll share communion. Father, we thank you that you're so full of chesed, faithful, ongoing love for us, and we pray that that might be translated into faithful, ongoing love for you that involves honest worship and true mercy. Help shape us in that direction. We need it. Sometimes we fall short. We thank you that you've shown us in Hosea that you pursue us over and over and over again, no matter what, even when we fall short. But do, Lord, help us to become like Jesus during this Lent season. Amen.